Well, good afternoon. Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. If I haven't met you before, my name is Rowan Kemp. Glad that you could join us here for the EU's uh, first Thursday public meeting. And we're back in general lecture theatre. How if you've never actually been in this lecture theatre ever before in your life? Welcome to one of... I don't know how old this lecture theatre is, but I reckon this has got to be one of the very early ones in this university. And I just love it when the EU gets to use it. I just think there's something... We've, EU's been on campus 80 years. We've had public meetings in this lecture theatre for a very long time. It's great to be back here, opening God's Word together, reflecting on what it has to say to us and to our world and to this university in particular. And that's what we're going to do today. Now, I want to ask you a question as we get started. It's a new semester... New subjects, new timetables, lots of new decisions to make. And I guess one of the questions that you need to ask yourself as we head into a new semester is where are you going to invest this semester and why? Where are you going to invest your time, your money, your energy, your passion, your zeal, your youthful vigour? Because be glad for a while you've still got it compared to some of us. Where are you going to invest your thoughts, your mental, your enormous mental capacities, since you are a student at the University of Sydney? Where are you going to invest and why this semester? Are you going to invest more in the gym this semester? Because, frankly, you're not that pleased with how you look. Are you going to invest more in the library this semester? because, frankly, you weren't so pleased with how your results looked at the end of last semester. You now have the fear of the university in you. Are you going to invest more in Manning and Wentworth this semester? Because, frankly, what you've worked out is this whole university game. The thing that you're really uni for, the thing that really gives you happiness, is actually spending time with your friends. Are you going to invest more in the internet this semester? Because what you've worked out is that's where you can get your sexual satisfaction. Are you going to invest more in alcohol and drugs this semester? Because, frankly, that's the only thing that is actually giving you any real escape from the mess of your life. Are you going to invest in your part-time job this semester? Because you've worked out that part-time job is actually the key to the fulfilment of your aspirations. In two ways. One, it looks better on your CV if you're an economics or commerce student. You have some high-flying part-time job. And you think, this is the key. I get that on my CV. Then I'll get the better job. Then I'll have the career and all the trappings that come with that. Or maybe because you're an art student, you say, well, yes, I'm working at Slack Max. And I do that because, frankly, it just gives me money and that enables me to have the happy lifestyle that I like to have. Frank, where are you going to invest this semester? And why? Because the question that sort of rides above all of that is this. Are you investing in those things and making those investment decisions because of your great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you making investment decisions this semester because you don't have great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or I'll ask it another way. Are you living this semester as a Christian in sole devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and God his Father? Or are you trying to live life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ while simultaneously 
giving yourself in worship to a whole lot of other little g gods. The reason I put the question that way is that is where this particular section of the book of Isaiah really pushes us to identify in ourselves. Now, I know not everyone here is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad that anyone and everybody comes to the EU public meeting. But if you do call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus, these chapters in the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 through to 48, really push on this question addressed to God's people and saying, Who are your gods? O people of God, who are you giving yourself to in worship? And so that's what we're going to look at today. Now, a bit of a reorientation. I've got a bit of an outline up there on the board. You can see we've come in our sort of on again and off again series in this book of Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 40. Now, just to remind you, get you back up to speed if you weren't with us in first semester or frankly exams and ANCON and holidays have sort of wiped, you've sort of wiped out your hard disk your mental heart is from last semester and you don't really know what you're doing. Isaiah was a prophet, if you didn't know that, in the Old Testament, a prophet in the nation of Judah. God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, split after the time of King Solomon into a northern tribe, southern tribe, northern tribe called Israel, southern tribe called Judah, capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. Isaiah was a prophet in that southern tribe in the 8th century BC. We think he probably uh, was commissioned by the Lord God himself as a prophet in about 740 BC. Uh, You might remember Isaiah chapter 6 where he's given that astounding vision of the one true living God, the hem of whose robe fills the vision of the temple. That was probably Isaiah's commissioning in about 740 BC. Within Isaiah's ministry, which goes from 740 BC through to probably about 700 BC, Uh, Within that time, the northern kingdom of Israel is actually wiped out by the great superpower of the day, the nation of Assyria. So a lot of Isaiah's ministry, particularly in those first 40 years from 740 through to 700, was concerned with the great threat that Assyria posed to the nation of Judah. And the, the constant message of God to his people was, look, stop stressing out about Assyria Just sit tight. You don't have to do anything except just trust me. And that's a pretty challenging thing to do when faced with a real threat, isn't it? Just to sit and trust God, do nothing. I mean, and God doesn't always say sit and do nothing, but he said to his people at that particular time, sit and do nothing. And they really struggled with that. They went off and did all sorts of things rather than sit and do nothing. But you might remember from last semester, we reached the great high point of Isaiah 40. Oh, sorry, Isaiah chapter 1 through to Isaiah chapter 39, the great high point that we reached was really Isaiah chapters 36 to 37, where finally the Lord delivered his people, Judah, from the threat of the Assyrians. The Assyrians had come right through the whole land, taken a whole lot of the towns, had come right up to the city walls of Jerusalem. Finally, Hezekiah the king, sort of realising that there really was nothing they could do now, they did what the Lord had always said to do, just sit tight and trust. He did that and the Lord won an astounding deliverance for his people with them not lifting a finger. And if you've forgotten about that, then you might like to go and read Isaiah chapter 36 to 37. It's a cracking story and it's an astounding deliverance, a great high point. But then we had Isaiah chapters 38 to 39. 
where suddenly this great high point is, is somewhat soured. Because what you realise here is a prophecy is made here about God's people that one day all of God's people will actually get taken over by a foreign power. Not the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians. And the whole of the city is going to get taken and the people get taken into exile. You think about that, what, what the prophecy is saying is something worse than what's just happened is going to happen in the future. There's going to be a real low point at some point in the future. We're not told when. Now, we know because of history, it did eventually happen in the 6th century BC, so some 150-odd years later. Indeed, God's people, in fulfilment of that prophecy, went into exile at the hand of the Babylonians, not the Assyrians. So the whole section from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 39 ends on this rather... I mean, that's pretty bleak, isn't it? God's people are all going to get taken into exile. Right. What an ominous, dark window into the future. So then you come to Isaiah 40. And we've got Isaiah 40 through 66. How does this fit into this story of Isaiah? Well, where we go, where we go in Isaiah 40, I don't even know how to draw this. I'll try. Anyway, it's like he takes us to another mountaintop. A mountaintop that's like this. This is Isaiah 40 to 66. In the light of the great darkness to come, where Isaiah 40 to 66 take you is to a fantastic mountaintop that is also somewhere in the future. Actually, it's happening after the downfall. There's a word of comfort to those who are going to go into exile. God doesn't say the exile isn't going to happen. He says... When you're in that exile, here is an astounding word of comfort for you. And that's what Isaiah 40 to 66 is. Isaiah is given this prophetic insight, a word of comfort, encouragement to God's people, such that when they do end up in that exile, here is God's word of comfort for them. So what we're going to do in these three weeks, and then also the last four weeks of semester when we come back to Isaiah, is we're going to look at this section of the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 to 66. Now, way too many verses, way too many chapters to look at in any details. So what I'm going to try and do is this. I've tried to identify seven key themes that come up in these chapters. And I'm going to do one talk on sort of each of these key themes and look at some of the passages where this theme arises so that that forms a framework for you so you can actually read the detail of these chapters and you'll understand the key themes as you read along. And hopefully that way will be a bit of a sort of a guidebook for you as you read through the book yourself. That's what I hope to do. So the big thing that's raised today is this question of who is the real God who can save his people? When God's people are down in this depth of the darkness of exile, which God will actually save them? That's the question today. Okay, so you've got a Bible there. Really helpful to hope. I'll open it to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40 and have a look to see what's on this particular chapter because this chapter launches us into this enormous mountaintop that is Isaiah 40 to 66. So let's have a look at that. On up to the section, Comfort for God's Exiles, on that outline. You might like to look along with someone next to you if you don't have a Bible with you today. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's the basic message for God's people when they get stuck into stuck in exile? The basic message is there in the very first two verses. Comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim that her hard service has been completed. The punishment for her wandering away from the Lord has been completed. So you've got comfort for God's people, completion of the payment of the, the penalty for their wandering away from the Lord. And what and the third thing that's added there is the message that God himself is going to come back to Jerusalem. Yes, they've gone into exile, but it's not just that the exiles are going to return to Jerusalem. God himself is going to come and bring the exiles with him. That's what you see. Uh, that's the, the thing about the highway. He's making straight the ways for the Lord who himself is going to return back to Jerusalem. So you have comfort, completion, and the coming of God. That's the essence of this word of comfort to God's people. What's that going to mean? What that means is things like their sins have been forgiven. It means return from exile. It means restoration of the city of Jerusalem. It means um, a restoration of relationship with their one true living God. That's the sort of thing that's wrapped up in that. Now, the point that he goes on then to make in chapter 40, in verses 6 to 8, is that this is going to happen in fulfilment of God's word. This is what God had promised long before. This is not a, this is not a thing that's completely unexpected. It's in fulfilment of the word of God. And that's going to be really key in all of chapters 40 to 66. What you'll read in these chapters is the reason stuff happens to the nation of Israel and in the world Stuff happens because God says so. The one true living God says so. People, they are like grass, he says. They they, they exist one day, they're gone the next. The thing that endures is the word of God. The word of the one true living God. And then he goes on in the rest of this chapter, if you jump down to verse 12, verse 12 to to verse 26 is this long section where he talks about how the Lord, Yahweh, is the one true living God, but, but all the other gods that people are worshipping, they're not gods. Why is this there? Why is this big section there in this opening chapter of chapter 40? Well, it's because he's introducing a key theme that's going to come up a lot, particularly in these first nine chapters of Isaiah 40 through to 48. Who is the real God is the question. Let's have a bit of a look at it. Verse 12, because this is sort of where we're going to focus in this theme today. What I want you to do as I read out some of the little sections is try and work out what's the point he's making in these couple of verses. So first of all, verse 12 to verse 14. Let's have a look. The Lord says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Talking about his own hand. Or with the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, 
or show him the path of understanding. Let me suggest to you how I'd summarise this, that little section. I think what he's saying here is that the Lord, Yahweh, Israel's God, is is greater than all in creation. I think that's the first thing he's saying. Let's then move on to the next couple of verses, see what they're saying. Verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. That is, the Lord is greater than all the nations. Let's keep going. Verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. People too poor to present such an offering select wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. What's the point? The Lord is greater than all the idols that people make. Let's keep going. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like the chaff. That is, the Lord is greater than all the people and princes. And then finally, verse 25 and 6. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. That is, finally, the Lord is greater than all of creation. That is, I think there's a pattern here. You have the Lord is greater than all of creation. The next level in, Lord is greater than all the nations and all the people and all the rulers. And at the very centre, which gives you a hint about the very point of this whole construction, he is greater than all the idols that people make. That is, what you're getting here is that the Lord is greater than anything else that people worship. See, in traditional religion, it was quite common for people to worship aspects of creation, to worship the sun, to worship the moon, to worship the starry host. It is quite common for people, in a way, to idolise, to worship, to bow down and serve kings and nations and military might. And so that's why I think that appears there. 
at the centre of it, which sort of captures all those things and everything else that people worship, is the Lord is greater than all the gods, all the idols that people make with their hands. Now, literally, people do make idols with their hands out of wood or stone or metal or whatever. But I think you can also expand it out and say all the the idols, all the gods that are human creations. And so I think what you get here is a comprehensive picture that the Lord is saying, you know what? I am greater than anything else that people worship. Whether it be stuff that's in creation, whether it be... people or the things that come with people and nations and might, or whether it actually be anything that a human being might create. I am greater than all of it. Now, he's spending a lot of time here in this opening chapter of Isaiah 40 saying that. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this so important? Well, the shocking thing is that when God's people... We're in exile here in Babylon. Were they waiting on the Lord God, the one true God, to rescue them? Well, sort of. But actually what they did is they they started worshipping other gods. So when they end up in exile, they start worshipping other gods, they start worshipping the Babylonian gods. And so God needs to give them this word. Whilst it comes in the middle of this word of comfort, I will comfort you, I will come to you, You need to turn away from your other gods, these gods that you've adopted and come back to me. That's a key message of all of these chapters, particularly the first nine chapters of this section. In fact, if you've got your Bible, turn to Isaiah 48 and you'll see just how sad it was. Isaiah 48. Listen to this, house of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah... You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel. See, that all sounds good, right? You invoke the name of the God of Israel. You're calling on the name of the Lord. It's all sounding good. He says, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourself citizens of the holy city, claim to rely on the God of Israel. The Lord Almighty is his name. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. What would that mean? The sinews of your neck being iron. It just means that they're fixed, right? You're not deviating. You've picked your direction and you're just going that way. But what direction have they... They haven't gone the way of the Lord. They haven't gone the way of truth and righteousness. They've picked their direction. They're stubborn and they're going away from you. He says, your forehead was bronze, which is no way of talking about having a stubborn sort of head. I don't know quite how that works, a forehead of bronze, but anyway, that's the meaning of the metaphor. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say, my image has brought them about. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. You've heard these things, look at them all, will you not admit them? What's happening in this section is he's saying, look, I'm going to rescue you out of exile. I am going to deliver you. But I'm telling you this beforehand. I'm telling you way beforehand that I'm going to do it because I know how stubborn you are, even though you're my people. Because when I rescue you, you'll go, oh, yes, this little metal God I made is rescuing us and taking us back to Jerusalem. He said, so I'm 
I'm getting ahead of you here. I'm telling you beforehand that I'm going to rescue you so that when it happens, you don't go saying, oh, look, this little God I've made has done this. The big point he's making is the reason, the reason that you can know the Lord, the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the true God, is because what he says, he does. He can say things, he has plans and purposes that he announces to the world and then he brings it about. And he's done it for God's people right through history. He announces his plans, he brings it about, he saves them. And yet time and time again, all throughout history, God's, the very people he's saving turn away from him and go after idols. So you go right back to the Exodus. God rescues his people out of slavery and idolatry in Egypt, brings them to himself from Mount Sinai, reveals himself, gives them his law, tells them how to live as he saved people, and they keep on worshipping idols. Go right through to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writing to Christians like you and I in, in, in Corinth. People who bear the name of the Lord Jesus have been saved by the Lord Jesus by his death and resurrection and he has to tell them, flee idolatry. He's not speaking to the people who don't know Jesus. He's speaking to Christians. You have to flee idolatry. Don't fall into idolatry like our ancestors did. And here you've got the same thing happening in the middle of those two, happening to God's people when they're in exile. He's promised salvation. They have the history of everything he's done for them. But they're going after other idols. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you just trust the Lord? Well, the scary thing is, this seems to be the pattern for God's people throughout all time. And it's a problem for us today. If you're a Christian person, you know that God has saved you wonderfully in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in the Holy Spirit in Him. And yet time and time again, we go after other gods. Even though, like God's people here in exile, we're waiting for our final salvation. God's promise that's going to happen. Jesus is going to return. Yes, there is going to be a new creation. Yes, we will be sort of like Jesus. We know it all. And in the meantime, we run after other gods. Why not do that? I read a book uh, during the week. Or part of a big, it's a big book by a guy called uh, Chris Wright, a Christian theologian, writes about the Bible, and uh, it's called The Mission of God, and he's sort of tracing the, this theme of the mission of God right throughout the whole of the Bible. And he has a big section on idolatry, because this is a big problem for God's people, is that we keep running after idols. And he asks three questions, which are really helpful questions. He says uh, three things. He says, if you want to work out what what sort of idols we run after. He says, worth asking these three questions. First of all, what things entice us? What do you find attractive, amazing, enticing? Because the chances are, if you're not careful, that can become a little God for you. Secondly, he says, what things do we fear? Because often we offer worship to the things we fear. Uh, it's true in ancient sort of re- tribal sort of religions too. Uh, uh, people may worship things like death. Why would you worship death? Well, it's because in your worship, in your sacrifice to the God of death, you seek to placate death and keep him at bay. And so sometimes we end up making a God out of the things we fear and we live our life sort of serving that fear to keep it at bay. 
And the third thing he says was, what do we think is the answer, the answer, or the solution, or our salvation, if we want to use a religious term? What's the answer to our current predicament, your current predicament? If only I had more money. If only I could move out of home. If only I, I could be in a stable relationship. If I, do you know what I mean? Like, what's, what do we think is the answer? That could become a God for us. Now, there's all, so these questions, I think, are really worth pondering and worth thinking a little bit, a little bit about. And because I think once we start exploring them, we start to realise how maybe, even though we might be following the Lord Jesus Christ, we have created these little gods of our own making. And we're trying to have the Lord Jesus Christ and have these other gods. It's very easy for happiness to be a God. It's very easy for success to be a God. Do you take any pride in the school you went to? No, no, I wouldn't. But secretly, internally. Do you take any pride in the school you went to or the mark you got in the HSC or how well you do at university? The fact that you're a Sydney University? The fact that you're in a prestigious degree? Because I tell you, when you have kids, will you just send them to the local public school? Local public school? I mean, you're not going to get ahead in life if you do that. You're not going to get a good education. And it's really important to get a good education and to be well-networked with other people. And, you know, it's just a, it's a, that standard of sort of behaviour and lifestyle and, and, and hello? See how easily you can just have all these values that actually start to reveal of maybe the little gods that we have in our life, the ones we're committed to serving? We have the Lord Jesus and we have this other thing, this vision of success, a successful life that I'm trying to annex to my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It just doesn't work, friends. The reason it doesn't work, and I think I'm just going to whiz through this, the reason it doesn't work is because these chapters teach us about the immorality and the idiocy of idolatry. It's immoral because God says clearly in these chapters, and you might like to jot down Isaiah 42 verse 8, where the Lord says, I will not share my glory with another. I will not share my praise with idols. It's like um, like we all have two boxes in our life. We have the, this is the God's box, and these are the things that are not God's. And in case you're not sure, you're here, right, in the not God box. What do you have in the God's box? You have the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But do you have other little gods there as well? Because God says, you know what? I will not tolerate anything else in this box except me. No other God from other religion. No little idol of your own creation. I will not share my glory with another. To do so, to try to, is immoral. It's also idiotic because, as he says repeatedly through these chapters, he says, those gods of your creation, they cannot save. They cannot save. And there's some wonderful passages here in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 46 where he says, you know what? These gods, they can't even save, save themselves. You have to carry their idols around for them. They can't even carry themselves. Yet he says, I, the Lord, I have made you, I sustain you, I carry you. It's so idiotic to trust these things that can't say. 
And I just want to say, therefore, as we finish, there's two calls in these chapters in light of this idolatry. There's one call to the world where the Lord says, Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Because only in the Lord is salvation. And that's important for us to hear as we head into a time where we're trying to proclaim to this canvas that there is salvation only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back and look at that in two weeks' time. But there's also a call here to God's people, repeatedly through these chapters. Return to me, says the Lord God. There is no other God but me. Return to me and be saved. Or as Isaiah 40 puts it, which is where we started and is where we'll end, he says this. He says, Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It is only in the Lord, friend, that is the solution to your problems. Where are you going to invest this semester? Why are you going to invest there? Because I tell you what, only by putting your hope in the Lord will you actually have the life that God intends for you. You may well still go to the gym, you may well still go to the library, you may still hang out with your friends, you may still work your part-time job, but don't do it thinking in that is going to be the answer. Unhindered soul devotion to God our Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the vision that these chapters proclaim and encourage us as God's people to grab hold of with both hands this semester. So why don't I pray that God might help us do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself as the one true living God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who has sent his Son to redeem a people for his own who love him and will serve him and will wait for him. And we thank you that you have done that for us. We thank you that you have helped us understand that through your word and by the power of your spirit. We pray, Father, therefore, you would help us to live it in our hindered devotion to you, to your praise and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Love to get your communication cards. Uh, please drop them in the bucket.